0: All right, I'm going to say that sentence one more time because I had a technical difficulty. And so that's going to be important to have on the, on the podcast as it sets up the night. The secret of the good news is that we actually do more when we hear less about all we need to do for God and hear more about all that God has already done to, uh, for us. So because I believe that it is true, and it seems like you guys too, we are freed up to joyfully to do more joyfully when we understand the good news as hearing all that God has already done for us so that an implication could be that we should always consider how a particular text points us to the Messiah who is quite clearly a central point of the good news. So if it's true that seeing that I can do more for God when I understand in the good news more that all that he's done for us versus what I can do for him, it would seem to follow that if the Messiah is a central aspect of the good news, then I should be on the lookout to try and get to when I'm in the scriptures, when I'm coming to the scriptures and reading the scriptures is how do I get to Jesus? We should be connecting any particular part of the story back to the life and ministry of the Messiah. Do you remember the story of the two disciples who are traveling out of Jerusalem? Yeah. yeah, and they're really having difficulty reconciling their experience to the expectation of who the Messiah was according to the scriptures and the good news that Jesus had proclaimed to them, and it all didn't seem to be lining up, and Jesus appears to them, right? And it's uh, it can be frustrating sometimes when we're reading the Bible, especially when there's um, dialogue going back and forth between characters in the story, right? That we don't know the tone, which can be really important. Like my mom always said when I was growing up, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. (laughs) (laughs) And then you realize, oh yeah, that's very true. I, I did have an edge there or whatever the tone is. But so we can't, we don't know the tone But maybe Jesus is a little frustrated because of what he said. Maybe we would know when he says to them, how foolish you are and (laughs) slow to believe. All that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself where? Do you remember the story? What did he say to him? What's that? In all the scriptures is an important word. All the scriptures. So they end up going back to Jerusalem, right after Jesus reveals that. You know, they stop in that little house and they're having a meal, and he breaks bread, and they're like, "Ah, oh, it's we've seen this before. It's him." And he's revealed to them, and so they head back to Jerusalem, right? And they, they get to the 11, and they're, you know, getting all excited, and they're telling them all about what had happened and, and, and what happens. Jesus appears. Jesus appears again. It's just like out of thin air. Like all of a sudden he was standing with the 11 and, these, and Cleopas and whoever this other guy was. And we read in Luke 24, 44 to 47, Jesus told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, which I think has to be, right, that's connected. You see the the line of logic here? It's So that you can see everything about me in those scriptures like he had just done. So he's doing with them, all of them, what he had done with the two on the road to Emmaus. He's making sure they can see. What is the definition of biblical theology? It's a unified, a unified story leading to Jesus. So what is Jesus doing? He's teaching biblical theology. He's showing them that all of these scriptures, this story that we read, the story of Moses and the children of Israel, the story of all the prophetic writings and everything they had to say, and even the story that we see in the Psalms and all of the Psalms, all lead to me. Jesus also said to them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to Pontata ethnos, all ethnicities. Which I think is a better way to translate that than nations, because when you hear nations, you think national political nation states, and that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about every ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Right? Cameroon is a nation. There are 67 ethnicities in the nation of Cameroon. If one of them is reached, Cameroon is not reached, because there are 66 left. All ethnicities beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus says something similar in some back and forth between... Jewish leaders we read in John's biography of his life in John chapter 5 if I testify about myself my testimony is not true there is another who testifies about me and I know that the testimony that he gives about me is true you sent messengers to John John the baptizer and he testified to the truth I don't receive human testimony but I say these things so that you may be saved John was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent and here's the key line, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. So once again, he's teaching biblical theology. You have to see that all of these scriptures that you have poured over, they all testify about me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. So yes, it is critical to pour over the scriptures and to know the story. And yes, it is an absolute waste of time if in light of the coming of the Messiah and the coming again of the Messiah, you're not pouring over the scriptures in light of the Messiah. And the reason we do that is to make sure that our reading of the scriptures is serving the purpose of giving us life more abundantly, which is what Jesus said he came to do. Namely, we want to live in such a way that is done with a constant thought of all that God has done for us, not in such a way that we are trying to do more for him. So that's a really key way to come at the Bible when you're reading the Bible. Whether that's before you go to bed at night, I I don't know what your habit is. Mine is to read the scriptures. I was gonna say right away in the morning, but coffee comes first. (laughs) So I can see Jesus in the Bible. (laughs) Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to. (laughs) I want tomorrow morning to come to, where am I? First or second Samuel uh, 19 in the morning. I want to come to that story. David, just having gone through everything he's gone through with Absalom, wanting to see how does that story fit into a larger story that is the story of the Messiah and what God has done for me. And then I'm living in the stream of that story. Do you see how that's a, that's a bigger vision? Isn't it interesting how much of a bigger vision that is to take into your day than, than kind of merely here's this little how to. Again, not that there aren't, of course there are very specific commands in the Bible that we have to follow, right? Jesus says this, don't, don't know your love for me when you keep my commandments. Okay, so yes, that's true but in the context of this larger understanding of who we are in God because of what he has done for us. And that kind of living, I believe, will then, in the words of DeYoung, right, that will actually result in us getting more done for the kingdom because whatever it is we have done, I think really connecting into how you said it, Roger, is it's going to be done with a proper intellectual understanding and a healthy heart disposition, And that's so important. How often did God have to say some variation of this people honors me with their lips and even even with their action, like even with their actions and their heart is just so far from me. And like, I want (laughs) he wants their hearts. He wants their hearts and he wants our hearts. It's just like I said on Sunday, like like if you have that kind of, if I'm coming into the day with this expectancy, God God is already doing for me, like like we learned on Sunday, right? Like before I even move a muscle in Jesus, this new day is already a success. I had to fight for that on my prayer walk this morning because I woke up crabby. Ugh hate when I wake up crabby. And that we're no longer limited to ourselves. Remember that sentence from Sunday that I'm still trying to tattoo on my brain and heart. I'm not limited to myself today or tonight or tomorrow. And these are life-changing sentences that are only possible when the dominoes that we're talking about are falling the way that they should every time we read the Bible. I come to the Bible with expectancy to see who God is, what he has done, what he is doing in this world. I'm trying to make a beeline to Jesus because this unified story points to him to see how how my life is caught up in that stream. And then when I'm acting with that kind of heart disposition and intellectual understanding, I can now step into this day in confidence. And I'll live with a, at least I'm off to a good start. (laughs) No guarantees, because it's me. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, then I can also say, somewhat paradoxically, there are some guarantees. There are some guarantees for this day. So, in order for all of that to happen, we need to do some work together
1: tonight.
0: Work that means that you're not just sitting there listening but that you're gonna have to get more engaged than you have been in any other previous core seminar. All right? So what you get out of tonight will be directly proportional to what you put in. So somewhat contradictory to maybe what I've just taught for the last 20 minutes, you're gonna have to do something. (laughs) All right. It's time time for a quiz. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you have to be somewhere all of a sudden?
1: <laughs>
0: what is biblical theology?
1: Unified story leads
0: man, you're, you're one for one. You're 100% right now. Should we just stop? You can tell everybody you got 100% on a quiz last <laughs> This is all kinds of grace because I I've, I've been very poor at doing this. Like once we got into the themes, I just stopped doing quizzes, and um, so it's my fault. What are the two? Can you remember? Way way long time ago when you heard about two different toolboxes that we have available to us in the study of in the discipline of theology.
1: Oh yes.
0: No, but. You're in the ballpark. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <I'm> so
1: <nervous.
0: laughs> the so grammatical time. historical method, you uh, talked exegesis, <laughs> right? That's. Do you remember the grammatical historical method? Okay, so it's just this. Um, the idea that we're breaking up the text into its propositions, just plain old grammar, right? And then we stole a little bit from last semester in how to study the Bible, mm-hmm. and there's three ways... When I'm coming to a text to break the grammar, there's three things that I need to do. Does any, any of those students from first and remember? That's a very, pro- oh, Andrea. Yes, gold star. That's extra credit. You're back up to 100%. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember what the three things after? The first thing you should do is pray. Observation, interpretation, and application. So, so those are three really important, so kind of just the idea of breaking the text apart and understand, so grammatical, historical, historical is just understanding it in the culture that it's written, right? Remembering who's the audience that this was written to, when was it written, where was it written, all those kinds of things so that you're understanding the, the little piece of the story, right? Because this is...
1: I mean, what we're
0: talking about is we have this, any story that's still going to go on forever, really, right? And so we're, we're jumping in. So if this, if this is the story of the scriptures, and then you know let's put cross here and ascension, and this is this is the age that we're living in, right? So this is we're we're between not two worlds, but we're between two ages, yeah. right? Because this this is the world we got, right here. And he's going to make it all new, and it's going to be awesome and way more fantastic than that. But what we're doing, when we're studying the time in which the scriptures were written, and obviously Revelation is over here, so there's some overlap. but we're going in to these little pieces of the story, and that's our grammatical, historical approach. And we, we need ways to, okay, how do I want to analyze this little you know, uh, Exodus 20, and how do I want to do First uh, Samuel 17, and how do I want to look at Psalm 1? Let's work that it. We might be going there. Um, so one of the toolboxes is the grammatical Historical Method. So I want to observe, I want to interpret, and then I want to apply when I'm looking at this piece. But what, the whole reason that you've been here in these eleven weeks is because you don't want to do that outside of the larger context of this whole kind of story, right? You need to make sure that you're situating it in the larger story. So that was one of the toolboxes. What is the other toolbox? Oh, and let me say. Mm, um, so if it's observation, interpretation, and application, this is just. This is. These are questions that are just super helpful. What does the text say? What does the text mean? Yes, prepositions are important. And those are three really, I mean, this is like basic core. Five, that's really like if you know that and you press into that, and we did a whole semester on that um, course seminar. So, that's what you're, that's grammatical historical method, observation, interpretation, application. What was the other toolbox that we had? Someone, someone said it. Yeah, what? Is it
1: literary? Yeah,
0: literary form. Yeah, literary form. So if we, if we go into the, um, so that's the exegetical toolbox, those two. Then if we go into the storyline toolbox, do you remember some of the things that we had in, available to us, some of the tools in the storyline toolbox? Plot. Plot, yes. Good job. What else? Sort of. Not a specific one that we had, but... I think they'd be part of theme. Who said theme? <laughs> Typology. Typology.
2: Typology, yes. The group
0: uh, not not ones that we covered. No, promise. Promise fulfillment. Some continuity and discontinuity. Yes. So there's some of the tools that we have in the storyline toolbox. What are the four major movements of God's story as found in the Bible?
1: Creation.
0: Creation. Fall. Rescue. New.
1: Redemption. 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 Creation.
0: New. Creation. New creation creation. or restoration. Yep, either of those. Yes. Yes. Creation, fall, rescue, and new creation. What is a six word sentence that summarizes the entire Bible? (laughs)
1: Don't even look at me. Oh my word! Aaron, that was... Okay, you
2: just made my night. You just made my night. Oh my goodness. Did you guys hear it? Don't even look at me!
1: (laughs) I'm not... What is a
0: six-word sentence that (laughs)
1: summarizes the entire Bible?
0: Kill the dragon, get the girl. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Does anybody remember the eight-word sentence that we had from Graham Goldsworthy? The thing of the theme of kingdom. Three of the words are God. God's
1: sword for God's people. God's time.
0: Y'all are trying so hard. I just see like sweat beating up on foreheads, just you're working so hard.
1: God's place at God's time? God's
0: rule. You, God's people in God's place? Under God. Eric and Andrea, we put them together and they, they got
1: it! And I'm looking right at you! God's people in God's place under God's rule. Yeah. Alright.
0: Good job on the quiz. Yeah. Well, you didn't crush it, but you did all right.
2: <laughs> but it's my fault. I didn't right? get a single
0: one. It's a, you know, if you don't do well on the quiz, that's just a reflection on the teacher, not on
2: you. Now,
0: so at the end of the study, can you give us questions with the yeah, answers on Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd be happy to, Because, see, I, I already have that. So that's very easy. I'll just give it to you. I'll give it to you after uh, next week.
1: Okay.
0: All right. So after that bit of, re- of review, with each text, here's what we're gonna do. So we're gonna we're gonna go through those three texts, um, and we're gonna ask several questions. And you have them in your handout. The first question we're gonna ask, and and this is a bit, again, from how to study the Bible in the first semester. What is the author's one intended meaning in this text? So that's when we're, when we're asking, what does the text mean? It's not, we're, you're not like, you're not going to application yet, right? Like, what does it mean for me or what does it mean to me? Like, too many Bible study groups do. We sit around in a circle and go, well, here's what it means to me. Well, I don't, I don't care what it means to you right now. <laughs> I want to know what it meant to
1: Paul before, uh,
0: yeah. before you tell me what it means to you or for you. So there is one intended meaning for each particular text that the author had, and that's what we're on the hunt for. That's important to set in the context of observation, interpretation, and then application. The next question is, where does this text fall in the biblical story so this is what we've been saying, but so it's, this is really by way of review. But wherever we are in the story of the Bible, we want to immediately go up to the highest level and make sure we've oriented ourselves in the story. So it's a bit like, um, okay, warning, Lord of the Rings reference, which <laughs> I, I think you're used to from me by now. Um, so in Hobbit, when when Bilbo and his dwarves are going through Yorkshire Forest, there's this moment they're trying to make a way through the forest, and there's like this canopy that's just... Heavy, and and there's like, it's kind of, if you watch the movies, it's like kind of foggy, and you know, they're all groggy and dazed, and they're kind of getting confused. And what does Bilbo do? He climbs a tree and goes up to the highest canopy, and he sticks his head through the canopy, right? He's like, I can see the Misty Mountains! So he knows, like, he can see where they're going, where they're headed, right? And what we have to do sometimes is we can get down into the details of the type. I'm doing this, so I'm not preaching on Sunday, and, and I'm going to be out of town, and so one of the things I did today was I, I put some materials together again, because it's been a few weeks since I've studied Romans, and I, I pulled out my, some notes, and I'm going to have all of that on the plane, because i got to get myself up through the canopy again, having been in Romans 1, 1 to the end of chapter 7, and i got to look and make sure, okay, do I remember this whole story of where, what Paul is on about here as we head into chapter 8, verse 1, mm-hmm. which is going to be such a pivotal portion yeah. of the letter now that we're coming out of the law. and we're, He's
2: finally getting to the Holy Spirit, yeah.
0: and he's going to be talking about the Holy Spirit as how we're able to do these things that he's been saying we can't do by way of the law. So that's what I'm going to be doing on a plane on Friday morning and Monday evening. Is getting myself, sit, getting above that canopy of the trees, then I can I head back down and keep myself from being all dazed and deep, right? It's, it's this. It's what, so, if head here, i got to keep coming back up to this storyline, which then supposes that you have to know that story. So, if you've never read through the entire Bible in your life before, please do that. Please read you the entire Bible. Whether that's 6 month plan, 12 month plan, 18 month plan, 24 month plan, read through the whole story. Because you can't do reference to the whole story you don't know it. It's abundantly obvious to the most casual observer. This is the whole discipline of biblical theology. We've been going through all of these themes to see how it works we can now put into practice on our own in our own Bible reading and looking for Jesus in the text and then applying it to give us joy in the good news and the story that God is telling and how our lives are part of that story too. Ideally, that's how it'll operate on a Thursday morning when I open up my Bible to 1 Samuel 19 tomorrow morning. You will recall that probably one of the more helpful things is this would be my I think, of. Uh, um, Diane actually asked me this this morning, "What has been your favorite class so far?" in teaching this course seminar. I said, "Probably Kingdom through Covenant, because there's there's all of these themes in the scriptures, but the covenantal theme seems so like so many other themes are nested kind of inside yeah. of this larger how I'm see, how God is bringing about His kingdom through the covenantal stru- structure and framework." Um, Because it's just one of more central ideas in the scripture. Forgetting all the other themes and getting after what we're talking about here, getting to see Jesus and all of his glory and in the progressive revelation of God working that out through his covenants. What's progressive revelation?
1: Nope. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Anyone anyone want to elaborate? Add to that. What's that? Sort of. What's so what's revelation? Let's define revelation first. You're, you're revealing something. What's progressive? Moving forward a little bit so you're, you're seeing increasing. Right? So what God is doing is there's this is this is his revelation, right? He reveals and what we see is we make our way as we proceed through the story that unfolds in increasingly deeper and interconnected ways. I I can only see so much if if all I read is right there, I I only see so much of God's revelation. Or or what if how many people can only get the New Testament? and so they they don't they didn't get to see how he unfolded all of this, which means they don't really understand this. Or, or what if you what if you were a Jew and you just stopped right here and you don't see like how the story continues. It's like turning off Lord of the Rings after book one. Why would you do that? <laughs> I'm talking I don't say the movie. I, I, I didn't say the movie. I'm talking about the book. It's a book. <laughs> so, again, we want to figure out... So, specific to this thing, we want to figure out what covenant we're in so that we know how to relate to that piece of the story, right? Okay, does that make sense? Any questions? Stop me if you've got questions. Okay, so... Uh-huh. I don't
1: want to get us too off topic, but so what if you tell a that it's just a baby of the Bible for the first time and it started in Genesis? Would you encourage that or
0: would you say there's a more... Believer, unbeliever. Unbeliever. I would probably... What I would probably do is because I want them to know who Jesus is yeah. so sure. they can be on the lookout for him. In the oh, correct. So, what generally what I would generally what I would do is, um, Mark is usually my first my first pick. Um, I, I think just because of the pace, because of the pace of the stories. I mean, Mark, and, and there's a. I think the level of what Mark is doing in the audience that he's reaching, it's likely the most easily understandable. Biography of Jesus for an unbeliever. Um, so that, yeah. And it's hard. It's a, it's a hard choice. I was actually just thinking about this about a year ago. Because um, okay. I, I usually tell people Luke. Then I realized that's just because Luke's my favorite. And uh, it's not the best reason to give. Well, it's just because it's my favorite. So, question number one what is the author's one intended meaning from the text? Number two, where does this text fall in the biblical storyline? Three, how does this text point to Jesus? So, this is where some of our tools from the biblical theological storyline toolbox, right, is going to be useful to see what kind of story device maybe is present to connect the smaller bits of the story to the larger bits. So, plot, typology. You remember typology? Goldsworthy told us the essence of typology is the recognition that within Scripture itself, certain events, people, or institutions in biblical history bear a particular relationship to later events, people, and institutions. The relationship is such that the earlier foreshadows the later, and the later fills out or completes the earlier. Think David and Jesus. Think temple and the church. We saw some of those things as we made our way through through some themes. So plot, typology, theme, kingdom through covenant, Eden to New Jerusalem, people of God, mission, idolatry, those are themes that we've worked through. Promise and fulfillment, we we look for those on on one end of that or the other. Here's a promise that's made, when is that going to finally be fulfilled? Or maybe I'm going to see that there's layers of fulfillment, right? We saw that telescoping effect when we've gone through some of these themes. Continuity or discontinuity. Am I supposed to obey all of the Mosaic law or only parts of it? Are parts of it um, abrogated? Are, are, Are they stopped? with the coming of the new covenant. And then there's those larger movements of the story that we talked about, creation, fall, rescue, restoration. That's a way to kind of understand a particular text. Or uh, One week we talked about God, man, Jesus' response. It could be another larger movement that we could work through. And the final question is, how do I read... So again, these are questions we're going to take to the text. How do I read this text through... Jesus, Jill, you talked about a lens, Mm -hmm. if Jesus is the lens. In other words, what does it mean for us? What does this particular text mean for us in the Messiah? Because where we are is over here. We're new covenant, right? So no no matter where I'm reading, I want to make sure that, yes, I'm going to read it for where it stands in itself in the story, but I'm, off, I'm always doing that from the perspective that I'm a new covenant child of God. I'm a new covenant child of God. Hallelujah, praise Jesus. Amen. As someone who doesn't deal well with blood, oh my <laughs> gosh, Jerusalem at Passover, I would just be passed out the entire Passover. <laughs> so, how do I read this text through Jesus? Now, you may be wondering, what exactly does that mean? I remember a number of years ago, I was, um, this is when I just become a uh, preaching pastor, a senior pastor of a church in Minnesota. And I had been there, oh, I think two or three weeks. And there was a little gathering up in, on the North Shore in Duluth, Minnesota, which is like our, it was our, it's just our favorite place to go and all in all of Minnesota. It was really, really beautiful. Country, and so I was excited that I get to go to a small gathering of some pastors and some teachers in a conference that our church was a part of. Which meant I had the joy of a drive, which meant I got to listen to something. And so I had just purchased the, the most recent year of the Ocking Day Lectures, which are lectures on preaching at Gordon the Seminary. And that year, Tim Keller happened to be delivering the Ocking Day Lectures on preaching. And so I'm driving up, and I'm listening to you know, Tim Keller. I actually know a whole lot about Tim Keller at this point. I know a lot more about him now. Most of you probably know who Tim Keller is. And at one moment, I'm talking these beautiful students, like, uh mid-October, and he says, listen, what you have to understand, and he's like, I know there's probably some young preachers out here who come to these lectures on preaching. What you have to understand is that to be a really good preacher, you're going to have to preach probably about 250 times, and until you preach about 250 times, you just don't have to accept that you're going to suck. (laughs) Now, I had preached three times at this point, so this sentence was at, in the exact same moment, incredibly encouraging and deeply devastating, because Awesome! I, ho- I I wish my whole congregation could just have the expectation he's going to suck for essentially 10 years.
1: Two hundred and fifty <laughs> sermons. And
0: it was encouraging because I knew um, I knew that I didn't have to have this huge high expectation for myself that I was going to have things I was going to need to learn. So after, after that sentence, he moved on to something Really helpful um, in relationship to preaching, which I think is really helpful in relationship to studying the Bible. So he had a basic outline um, that he almost always tried to use preaching. I, I think about this probably not not every week when I preach. But I don't structure. I don't structure every single <laughs> sermon uh, this way, but. I, I, do, I do think about it just about every week. So it's similar to our observation interpretation application. It says, so, number one, what does the text say? And he just combines, you know, kind of 1.1 and 1.2. What does the text say and what does the text mean? And then, um, oh, how? How do I live my life in light of that? Oh, no. I cannot possibly. Do that. Right? Because that's isn't it? Like if we're honest, what does it say? Okay, here's how I'm supposed to live. Uh-oh. <laughs> I can't do that. But ah. there's one who did. And in him. I can. And The thing that was revolutionary is about this is I think so many churches are taught because preachers are taught the most important thing that you can give them on a Sunday morning is what? Application. Says the preacher. (laughs) Application. Right? The, The big criticisms. Most of the criticism in my ministry has been as a preacher, you're not giving us enough application. You're not telling us what to do. And, and I, I lived in response to that. I thought, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm supposed to say, no, I'm not. That's not the good news. That's not the point of the Bible. That's, the point of the Bible is to show you who God is and who Jesus is and what he's done for you, not what you're going to do for him. And so don't make application, Don't leave them every week walking out with something to do. Leave them with Jesus was his point. So start. Yes. What does it say and mean? How do I... What's the command here? What's, what's the instruction? What's the behavior? What, how am I being shaped? I can't... It's so often... We just have to be honest. Pride... Well, we'll keep you from saying that. Well, oh, I can do it. No, you can't. That's the whole point. There is one who did, and in him, I can now do that. So, uh, I think that can be a helpful tool for us as well. So, let's test drive. Let's test drive these questions. Right? First text, turn to Exodus chapter 20.
1: Exodus chapter 20.
0: Verse 14. Here's the. We're going to take a big, large chunk of text here, right at the beginning. Someone want to read our massive text in Exodus 20:14? Do not commit adultery. All right. Thank you. Thanks for taking your time. (laughs) Do not commit adultery. What is the author's one intended meaning and main point in this text? Um, to,
2: not says, yeah. to not commit
1: adultery.
0: To not commit adultery. You guys are sharp! <laughs> My goodness! What is adultery? Cheating.
1: Cheating on your spouse, cheating on God, or looking at another woman with lustful eyes. Okay,
0: you've got Exodus 20.14 to work with here.
1: Putting somebody uh, um, inappropriately.
0: So we heard heard one. We heard it. If you're in a covenant
1: relationship with a woman, to my understanding, it would be to um, have... Jesus teaches
0: us to even look upon another woman, but then
1: I go there yet. It's before
2: that, so it would probably be to have sexual relationships with another woman.
0: Or someone who's not your spouse. Not your
1: spouse.
0: Yeah. And, and I like, Eric, it's really important that you put it in terms of covenantal obligation. That's yeah. super helpful, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what marriage is it's covenant.
1: Yeah. It's not a right.
0: legal contract per se,
1: it's,
2: it's covenant. covenant.
0: All right, so, yes.
2: Even though breaking that covenant, even if you are not unfaithful to your spouse in the midst of it, if you divorce, adultery does and can occur after a divorce as well, according to the Old Testament law. So it's not just, I mean, you're right. It is within the covenant of a marriage, but if a man... Divorces his wife and then goes beyond that. Then, right. So then it's, it's, yeah, if the covenant hasn't been, been, been set. Correct. Yeah. 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 Yep. So it, according to the Old Testament, though, it's 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 pretty thorough. There's more to it than what we oftentimes think. Yeah. Only
1: like
0: certain stipulations for reasons that you can divorce. Let's let's not go. Let's. I'm trying to <laughs> keep it on. to keep on the ball tree right <laughs> now. Yes. <laughs> Where does this text fall in the biblical storyline? Mm-hmm. Early on, as a set commandment.
1: Okay. After they just left Egypt. Same word. Yeah.
0: So it's part of the Mosaic There we go. So it's part of the Mosaic Covenant. Right. When it just <laughs> left out of the fire. <laughs>
2: So, so it's part old. of the mosaic covenant. So let's keep. Let's keep,
0: keep thinking about that. Larger. That is just see a nifty white thing right there. This is so full of. I
2: don't remember. If you want to come up with that? Six hundred thousand men, whatever. They didn't have God for four centuries. So, God is new to them, and His holiness is new to them. This is all new to them. That's why so many of the laws are actually just like, how do you live? Don't put wool with cotton. Things like that. I mean, so, yeah. yeah, this right. is all new to them. It's it had to be shocking.
0: Right. So, perfect answer to a question I haven't asked. Sorry. No, don't apologize. No, my next question is, what is the Mosaic Covenant for? And Kyle's just given us a really good description of that. That's what the Mosaic Covenant is for. What is, what is it meant to accomplish, elaborate, Kyle?
2: Uh, well, I mean, again, a, um, I got to visit.
0: I'll be able to pull you back.
2: I got to go through Ukraine um, and Russia about a year and a half after the wall fell. And we saw millions of acres of perfectly good fields, unplanted and uncared for, back in 91. Because these people had been told what to do every day, every hour of every day their entire life. They didn't know how to be self-motivated, they didn't know how to self-govern, they didn't know anything. The nation of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, knew nothing. All they knew is what Egypt told them to do. Their their slave masters and their owners told them, this is what you will do, this is how many bricks you will make, this is what you eat, here's where you live, who can you mingle with, who you can't mingle with. Everything about the mosaic law is not everything about it. You're right; it's pointing towards the Messiah, but it is a revelation of who God the Father is and His character and His expectations. Yeah. It's about the Father and revealing Himself to them, yeah. so they know who He is and what He expects. He's a holy God and he's trying so. to but again, a lot right. of it is also just how do you even? What well, and I think to,
0: I think in, in relationship to, if we think of Genesis 1 and 2, how these relate is, this is in the midst of a storyline. To put a, a little bit of a finer point on what you're saying, is they've, it's not just that they've lost their way in the end of God for 400 years. It's that humanity has lost its way in this entirety of time. And this becomes, through God's special people that he's revealing this specifically to, the way for all of humanity to understand what does it look like to live a life of flourishing? What does it look like to be an image bearer of this God that you've lost track of and you're not connected to? This, it's that whole life. So do not commit adultery is a, is a piece of that larger story and relationship. That's where it falls in the biblical storyline. So, question number three. How does this text point to Jesus?
2: A little quieter, please. (laughs) How does this text point to Jesus? No idea. Well...
0: Well, maybe maybe a question to ask would be, if you've got some tools for storytelling, <coughs> how might plot help you, or how would a theme like kingdom through covenant maybe help
1: you answer this question, or I think like I don't know, he's bridging the gap. Jesus is bridging the gap, and so without Jesus, we're estranged to God, and with Jesus, we're we're reunited There's so much through scripture where in Isaiah all over the place in Hosea where the adultery is a picture type of us like going to idols, going to other things and in Hosea specifically it's like the Lord, you know, putting Hosea, like love her anyway, you know, marry her. She's your bride. You know, so in our flesh we're so adulterous. Um
0: Yeah, so maybe maybe part of it is yeah, if I'm if I'm trying to get here because I'm a great part so here's, here's my Jesus, he had longer hair. And he had a big beard. Okay, so
1: and blue eyes.
0: And Yeah, blue eyes and white. <laughs> uh, is that when he was praying in Gethsemane apparently, that that photo of him that went around for a while. That's what you put on
1: Facebook. Yeah,
0: that's right. So, yeah, so I think if I'm making my way through, like you're, what you're doing there is going through the prophetic writings and to get to Jesus and see what what, my, what connections might be there as I'm making my way through the overall plot of the story. And if you did that, what, what you might come to is what you all said earlier, right? Like, Part of this is when I'm trying to get to Jesus, I want to see in what ways did Jesus get here? That that can help me sometimes understand how does that pathway flow both ways so that you, you mentioned that Jesus talked about this there, like he says in, in so think in your mind, did, did Jesus have anything to say about the law of Moses?
1: Yeah. 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 Oh
0: yeah. Yeah, he did. He says in Matthew five yeah. seventeen. Yeah. do not think, turn to Matthew 5, let's go to our Bibles, Because getting to Jesus can often be, you know, what did Jesus think about this? What did he say about it? Is he a fulfillment of this? Is he a continuation of these things? Right? Those are all, these are the themes and the the storyline tools that we've looked at in relationship. The unified story that's leading to Jesus. So Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Mm-hmm. What does that mean?
2: You'd have to go back for sure from that point to understand that. To
1: to yeah. Well, there's parts about, you know, Isaiah prophesied about it to But as far as the law,
0: there's multiple layers yeah let me give you let me give you mine and then you guys can respond how's that okay. I'll give you what I how I thought about this so part of what I think that that means is that I think there's a personal aspect in Jesus himself that he fulfills the law entirely and completely there's there's no sense in which he breaks the law mm-hmm. yeah he keeps it perfectly yeah, except the law also, right yeah. 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 There's, there's certainly a sense when we get to Romans 10 where we're going to be confronted with this idea Paul is going to unpack this is what does it mean that he is the Telos and the fulfillment of the law because I think there's layers there but at a, at, a, at least one layer it's that he fulfilled it personally completely Some would say therefore the end of it but he seems to be saying it didn't come to. a His teaching in verse 27, if we keep going, then I think clarifies this a bit, when he starts to unpack, okay, if I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it, let me, it seems he's saying, let me clarify that a bit for you, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Oh, that sounds familiar. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, no. There's no way that I can possibly live according, right, Keller's grid? Oh,
1: yeah.
0: What's the text say? What's it mean? How do I live in light of that? Don't commit adultery. Okay, I didn't physically have sex with someone other than my spouse. Jesus says, uh, time out. Let me flesh that out a little bit more for you. Uh, if you look at a woman and think in your mind about that act yeah. guys, if you do the double take yeah. even, right? Like, I didn't linger but you did the double take. Then you have already committed he's redefining adultery.
1: Yeah.
0: Is he not? Yeah. If your right eye and then he says this to me, if your right eye causes you Right? Whoever looks, what do you look with? Yeah. <coughs> Aqueous humor retina and retina. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of, your, one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So how do we read this text through Jesus? What would it mean for us? I think Keller's grid is helpful here. What does the text say? What does it mean? I've got a better idea of what it means. Oh no, here's how I'm supposed to live my life. I can't possibly live like that. Ah, there's one who did. The text says, if I've lusted, I've committed adultery because every human has done this. So everybody, as a spouse has committed adultery. Every human except Jesus. Jesus is clear. I have to be killing sin or it will be killing me, in the words of John Owen. I have to follow in the way of Jesus in this because he has fought lust more than any other human in history. C.S. Lewis taught me this. There is no one who has experienced temptation on this planet like Jesus has experienced temptation because he's the only one who never gave in.
1: Right. Amen. think about that yeah.
0: think about how you exert energy and fighting and gouging and cutting and, but you still sin so you don't know what it's like to be tempted and yet without sin Hebrews twelve four: in struggling against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood which I think there, I think the actual, actually the author of Hebrews is, is talking about Gethsemane as an example. Jesus being tempted to not go to the cross. If there's any other way, Father, I'll take it. But not my will, your will. So what is he, why is he sweating blood? Because he's fighting the temptation to run. So he's, I've got to go. I've got to obey Got to do what you've called me to do. It makes me think of, I remember years ago um, listening. Uh, we used to go to Bethlehem Baptist Church where John Piper was a preacher. And he gave an analogy one time of fighting sin, it's like, and, and in particular, this idea of fighting lust. Like, right, because you've got to have strategy. What, what's, what's your strategy for <laughs> not committing adultery or lusting after women in your mind? lusting after a man. I mean, this cuts both ways. It's not just about men with women, right? That's yeah. not what Jesus means, that all women are free wants to lost the But all this pornography viewing this on a sharp rise among women in our lives. It's absolutely staggering. So this is a human issue. And John talked about it. imagine if there's like a huge pit and in lust with the locks. Highly ways the write that my children are over here. Watching my struggle with this, and how how hard am I? I've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. How hard am I? That rope is pulling fighting into the waist. Like how hard am I put, pulling back against being pulled down into this pit of sin? Am I am I holding with my hands so that you now my there's blood starting to come through my fingers because the rope is burning on my fingers, trying to get me and pull me down? How hard am I fighting? Or or if if it were that. I remember and you might think this is morbid. Okay, so I'm just gonna risk it and show you how I think how I try and fight sin. You to think about how hard would I fight if when my kids were yeah, I was in the food, uh we had Colton and he's just crawling around and I remember being out in the uh, <laughs> he split his head on on a step in our garage one time. So he'd be out in the garage with me. And I remember him crawling around. So then I thought, like, if he was under the garage door and the garage door broke and he was going down, and like this heavy garage door, how hard would I fight to keep the garage door from not going down on my tolerance? How, how hard would I fight? that? Like, his life is at stake. If I'm looking after a woman or I'm tempted to do that, I need to see her. Like Peter says, about wives, and I think it can apply to women, see her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. That's Jesus' little sister. She's, she's made in the image of God. She, she's not mine. She's not mine to look at her body, and, like we see all the Song of Songs, the way that they're talking about each other, right? And they're elaborating in great detail how much <laughs> they are drinking in, and I won't get into it you know, right now, but it's graphic. It's graphic, right? And that's how I'm supposed to think about Susan, but not someone else. No one's supposed to think about Susan that way. That, that woman isn't mine to take in that way. Susan is, but not another. So what are the what are the strategies? What about being honest with other followers of Jesus, fighting to grow one step closer to Him in the proximity and likeness? Brothers and sisters, Galatians 6. If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person. Which means... There has to be some kind of an awareness, maybe it's because you're sharing it, right? right? Confess our sins to one another, John writes, let's do that with each other, or you just see it happen, like some fight happened between a brother and sister, and you engage in that because you want to restore them, with a gentle spirit, don't be a jerk about it, (laughs) because you're no better, you're just another sinner helping another sinner, watching out for yourselves, So that you also won't be tempted, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill, huh, the law of the Messiah. Okay, where's all that going like to see it through Jesus? Kind of operating behind all of that is none of that is being done on my own. I I see Jesus as this one who did. who did fight to the point of, and he did shed his own blood. And so in him, in him, I can see, I can get to Jesus because in him, he will give me the victory. I have the possibility of victory. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah.
0: Like, that's how I'm, I'm getting to Jesus. Now, and part of that, again, is because... <coughs> Maybe Hebrews informs us here, I have this great high priest who is tempted in every way, yet without sin, so he understands that he's are to our weaknesses. So I am one that Jesus was a single man, tempted in every way. We hesitate. We don't want to do this like he's tempted, but there's a difference between temptation and sin. Yes? So I can be tempted. And that, there's a, <laughs> a
1: oh there's a line
0: there that that we don't even want to play with right That's like our I don't even want to play with that but there is a line that he's tempted so he had to be tempted to look on a woman but he didn't, he didn't fall prey he didn't sin that that temptation didn't give birth to sin James writes in Jesus there's possibilities in him that I can be free.
1: And I can then obey the command of Exodus twenty fourteen 14, that,
0: that I think there is still continuity, not discontinuity in the new covenant. Continuity, and that command still applies. Jesus taught us that in
1: Matthew 5. I have a, I have a question. Oh, yes. There's all <laughs> the kinds of
0: questions. Go ahead. Sometimes I have a hard time dealing with, with question three. How
1: does this Trinity, and I look at not just necessarily how's it pointing to Jesus, but how's mm-hmm. it pointing to the Trinity, and, in, and with this scripture, I see a lot more of God, God, and His uh, operation. Mm-hmm. There's other scriptures I see the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. is the, do- the dominant, the yeah. person of the Trinity that that scripture is pointing to. Where. What we're studying here tonight is is pointing to Jesus. So is that a totally different
0: thing to Mm-mm, be looking at it through the lens of the three different no, points I of the Yeah, I think that's really helpful, brother. I, I think um when we say the good news, right, it's the this is what I've, I I I try and keep doing for us and reminding us but I do think I think recently, Right, this is the good news. That's a piece of the good news. So I think that that absolutely then makes what you're doing valid, right? Because it's it's and, and here's how I actually here's how I think about it to help me be a Trinitarian, is um, in the scriptures I think I always want to be looking at when God is used, is that speaking of the Trinitarian God? Or does it is it speaking of Father, Son, or Spirit? So I'll, like, when I'm writing notes, even when I'm journaling, like in the scriptures, I, I do capital G, capital O, capital D for myself when I want to say I'm talking about the Trinity here. And then I try and always use Father, Son, and Spirit in those other aspects. Because I think you're right. I think you want to draw This is like this is really about the Godhead. There's another way theologians say it, right? Like This is about the Godhead, the activity of the Godhead. But this is being very specific about the work of the Spirit or the work of the Father or, like, which I think is synonymous with Yahweh. Like, I think when we see Yahweh or Adonai in the Old Testament, we're, we're speaking in terms of the, the fatherly aspect of the Trinity, it seems to me. I, I don't, I get nervous because I think there's the be a that, that isn't true, but bear with me. Um, so yeah, I think that that's very valid. Uh, so then, the, the the only thing I wanted to say is, I think generally, the scriptures, Jesus as the image of the invisible God, um, I, I think him taking on flesh, stepping in, does become this. My words start to fail, don't they? I want to say unique, then I want to go. Well, <laughs> he is unique in that he has he's incarnated. So I think he has. A uniquely visible role in the new covenant in a way that is different and more emphasized. And that's why I think it's okay, because I thought a lot about this. Is it valid to be, Kyle pressed on me once a few weeks ago, of like, is it valid to. You know, we want to be careful and do we want to define biblical theology in terms of a unified story that leads to Jesus? And my answer to that question is still yes, I think that's valid. And you're bringing up another good, and we don't want to lose sight of the God, certainly. And we don't want to say that Jesus in any way overshadows the Father. Um, because I, I do think within the Trinity, there is there is also subordination. So certainly I think the Father has primary place in the Trinity because the, Father, the Son submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Son. So there's a hierarchy in the Trinity. Um, so absolutely, bro. that's a long answer to a short question. But I, I, think, I think that that wouldn't be wrong to go, oh, maybe this is actually... I, I mean, there could be a sense in which Jesus brings this about, but it's really mainly as a reflector of what God, the Father, is doing. Or the totality of the work of the God. Yeah, that's how it. All right, First Samuel seventeen. First Samuel seventeen is the story of David and Goliath. Yes. Oh, there's a question over here.
1: Oh, Did you say answer you answered it? it? Oh yeah, no, that Did was I answer my it? question. Yeah. Like, well, what about okay.
0: Here's what we're gonna do. Next time, what we're gonna do is um, we're gonna do like these other texts because it's 7:15. Yeah. I don't even want to get and I and I want to read. I actually I was gonna be like well you know the story. I actually want to read all of chapter 17 and I want to dig into the text together because this is this is like hopefully where we're harvesting some seeds that have been planted over the last number of weeks. And so, is there any final? Any final questions? Uh, I yeah, just
1: one thing that comes to mind, and it's like, you know, how does this um, lead me to Jesus? And, um,
2: how do you think about what like, Jesus has done to me with God? And, you know, this, the, the whole story is um, he made it a lot more personal and intimate type story. So when, you know, when we think about it, like,
1: um, from, you know, the fact that... Uh,
2: a lot of these people, like let's say uh, the Pharisees, they would do a lot in front of everybody. But what they did is behind everybody, who knows, right? But what Jesus did was he showed us that what we do when nobody else is watching is truly, um, what that's the type of relationship we have with God. He knows all things. And um, so when you have that personal relationship, so I try to think about, well, how is this, you know, um, leading me to, to a, a more personal relationship with God as well. Is that, should I not do that?
1: I don't know. No,
0: I, I yeah, I think that's valid. Okay. Um, what that's, I want to, what Jesus I just what God I just want to inject you. into that, what I want to <laughs> inject into that, because I'm not saying this isn't you. Yeah. I, you're, you're raising a thing that I think is present in the church. I think that the church for too long, the Western church, excuse me, the Western Church, for too long, this language of a personal relationship with Jesus, I don't see in the Bible. Oh. Just like I don't see in the Bible, I ask Jesus into my heart, That's right. right? And and so it's, I think that of course there is a relational. Of course, he talks about it in terms of family. He's a father. Jesus is my brother. Like there's a relational aspect, and I'm it, our our church is. Our mission is to help people grow one step closer to Jesus. Yeah. And now I'm adding a little bit. It will never be in our mission statement. I'm not changing the sentence. <laughs> but in proximity and likeness, because I want to get closer to him. And as I get closer to him, I want to look more like him. But I, the Bible never sees that in terms of an individual pursuit of Jesus. Ever. You guys, ever. Yeah. It's a communal... This is why I'm still waiting for the Southern Version translation of the Bible that's filled with y'all. Because English English plurals <coughs> almost all the places where Paul is writing, almost all of them, I don't have the percentage off here. I had it at one point. Uh, it's like I think it's greater than 90%. Of the yous that you see, like we go, oh it's right right to me. Well yeah, he is, he's writing to a group of people. Right. Which, which changes, which means, as a group, I'm to respond to this. Right. And there's so many places where Jesus, like we even miss where he's talking to the what? Disciples. Yeah. Right? Like, and, and then they're wrestling with this, and they're screwing up, and they're getting ticked at each other. And,
2: Why did you ask them to be right Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right? Like,
0: <laughs> they're growing together. They don't even get sent out one by one. They get sent out what? Yeah. Two by two.
1: I like what you said about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, oh, <laughs> yeah.
0: There uh, are so not many times that
1: I've said
0: it in my life, and you know, then all of a sudden, R. Yeah. But
1: just off of the bat. Uh, out, out, of out of nowhere. Like, oh, now yeah. R. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: All right, so read. Yeah. Next time, read 1 Samuel yeah. 17. And, and it, it would be really good, actually, if you read like 16, 17, and 18, right? Because what is king?
1: Context,
0: Context is king. <laughs> And a, a, a text without a context is what? <laughs> Boom! Lisa nails it. Extra credit. She's at 100% for her quiz as well. All right, and that's what we'll talk about next time. Are we meeting next week? We are. We weren't going to, but now we are.
1: Tuesday.
0: I'm traveling, and I just and I, so I wasn't enough time to prepare. But I just decided to. Well, you've
1: already prepared. Well,
0: <laughs> I do have, yes. I, I, I may have enough for just next week. Yeah. So. Um,
1: I think you've got about four weeks on this handout. Yeah,
0: okay, all right. Lisa says, would someone like to close us in prayer?